Hiya, welcome. Uh, this week we're with uh, Kieran Koff. Kieran is the Green Party MEP for Dublin and rapporteur for the European Parliament on the next recast of the EU directive on the energy performance of buildings. Not necessarily something that's directly going to affect UK listeners, but man, we can learn from him all the same. Uh, it's me and Jeff. I promise Alex is there too. He just stays very quiet until about 30 minutes in. You join us. Actually, you join us when we're reminiscing about the first time we met Kieran at the Green Party Christmas drinks back in 2003 when we were invited because we were doing the magazine, which we did the whole episode about back in January. Um, yeah, so you join us when we're talking about our first experience of meeting politicians face to face in the the bar of the the Doyle Aaron. Bear with us; we get into it pretty quickly. Uh, although we do only introduce Kieran ten minutes in, I realised. But yeah, thank you for joining us. Uh, if you could share, if you enjoy it, you probably know other people who will. So please share it with them. Uh, if you can review five stars, please. As Jeff says, toxic positivity, it's important, apparently. Um, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry about sounding so rough last week. I heard myself, my little message during the week. I sounded awful. Evidently, I'm a lot better. Um, cheers for bearing with us. All right. I'll let you go now. Cheers. Bye. She was different to anyone else we'd met that evening, as I remember, yeah. in yeah. that she was sneering and patronizing like because we were there ostensibly this is the only you're talking about because we were i mean you know we were in our early 20s then i don't think i was even 23 and yeah she used the gotcha on me in the the doyle bar where oh so you're all about the environment are you but you're smoking eh? (laughs) yeah i i treated her with the contempt she deserved uh yeah She's probably just having fun, you know. I don't know. Um, she, no, no, it was, it was like it did look like she was sneering. Having, it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a difference between having fun with kids and treating them as less than you. And we were definitely being treated as less than. Yeah, yeah. I, I met me home Martin for the for the, for the one and only time actually then as well. And um, I, I remember I never judge people by I'm not into this nonsense about uh, you know giving a strong handshake you know as a as a kind of a power play. It's rubbish, but um. But it, but it was the it was the wettest limpest handshake, and he didn't make eye contact. You know, he had no interest in talking to me. I, so you know, in politics, first impressions count, and uh, it, it's worth remembering. Um, it really is. Yeah. So absolutely. do you do you have a particular technique? I got trumped in that sort of grip and pull. You know, where they grab you as hard as they can and pull you off balance. Oh, oh, oh yeah, yeah. No, I go for the Bill Clinton move. The kind of Firm enough handshake, but then the left hand on the elbow, and, yeah. and you lean oh. in. And... Oh, that's yeah. Yeah. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's strange. Yeah. Uh, this, uh, dimensions. Did you ever think before you got into politics about these elements of obscuring? You know. Uh, no, but in the early years, I remember. Uh, I think it was Eamon Ryan talking about the noddies of uh, long-term politicians who nod at everybody for fear <laughs> that somebody will say, I walked past him, he didn't even say hello. <laughs> uh, and you see that in the Doyle. And funny, going back in, because I'm very rarely there, but I was there yesterday uh, or two days ago, and uh, every kind of TD and senator is looking at you and you get the nod. How are you? <laughs> and they may or may not know you, but they make sure 
that you acknowledge that they nodded at you. <laughs> it's very interesting. We should actually do. Um, I mean, we. I wonder. We might try and use some of this because it's good. Um, uh, but you know, re, 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 uh, surprisingly good. I'm you're... conscious you're. Re- no, I'm not conscious you're recording. I better be conscious you're. Recording. <laughs> no, we, if, we don't have to. We don't have to. You know. Um, no, you're good. You're good. Yeah, grand. But I, I think it is interesting to 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 think about political styles and political systems because in Ireland, as we were saying, yeah, we're all on nodding acquaintance with everybody. Um, mm. We want to make sure everybody likes us. Uh, whereas in Europe, um, different electoral systems, list systems uh, that absolutely attract the political scientists rather than uh, the fellow who hangs out at the rugby club. Yeah. Um, so people look straight through you uh, and they absolutely, uh, many people just don't do small talk. It's straight down to business. Uh, and oh, you have yeah. to navigate quite a different landscape to Irish politics, where whether it's local, national or even running uh, to be an MEP, you have to shake hands, say hello to everybody. And absolutely, the last thing you want to hear is he didn't even say hello. (laughs) Or the baby kissing as well, all that, yeah. Um, Yeah, I I, I don't think I've ever, ever done that. But um, (laughs) yeah, sometimes it's only only a sliver away from that level. (laughs) Will you give me a vote? Um, I should also introduce you to Alex. So um, Dan and Alex... um, are obviously co-hosts on the podcast and uh we've we've also off the back of the podcast we've we've launched a consultancy together called zero ambitions partners um their their background dan and alex are uh, after dan left the magazine um he worked for some other magazines in the uk and get, then got into for his sins and uh, things where he met alex um comms for in the financial services sector so now uh in a kind of an atonement move they've come back into the sustainability space and uh and but what's so interesting about them Kieran and why I was kind of keen to collaborate with them in spite of my um uh the deep antipathy I hold for Dan um is um uh their focus <laughs> French, is, right? <laughs> and Alex <laughs> is um is the user experience focus I don't know if you if you if you look much at UX as a discipline um or if you're familiar with it as uh as an area um but it, it's it's really fascinating and it's something that uh, it, it has the potential to fill some kind of enormous voids that we have uh, in in the sustainable building area uh, in terms of how we deliver the message and how we how we um, how we define everything that we're planning to do. Really, um, uh, it's hugely important. I mean, I don't really know and think of it as the user experience. I, I certainly, from my professional background as an architect, I I think a lot about post occupancy evaluation. Did it work? Did it do uh, what it said on the tin? Did people put furniture where we expected them to put the furniture? Yeah. All of these kind of things are, are really, really interesting. But actually, I'm just coming from uh, a sit down meeting with uh, the Vincent de Paul uh, in Ireland. We were having uh, a long conversation about energy uh, poverty. And, you know, there are concerns there as we move towards smart buildings, as we move towards heat pumps. Mm. Um, issues arise and and. Uh, particularly amongst the most vulnerable uh, issues around prepay meters uh, this, yeah. uh, over the last six months with the crazy energy prices, uh, people turning off heat pumps, then turning them back on again. Uh, yeah. You know, what impact does that have? It, it is a whole new landscape. And actually, uh, I mean, it, within this law in Europe that I'm working on, the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive, uh, I want to ensure that there's good advice. And I talk a lot about one-stop shops where you can get impartial advice. But it's not just about people rocking up at your one-stop shop. 
we also have to flip that into going out and talking with people and uh, bringing them through uh, the new building systems and the new technologies and making sure that they are reassured and happy and capable of working with these new technologies. That's exactly it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we're expecting so much behavioral change from so many people throughout the ecosystem, from procurement, like there's a whole new set of skills required from the procurement people, from building designers, from the contractors delivering the work all the way through to, uh, well, the, the people living in the buildings. I think the heat pumps is a particularly interesting idea. We were speaking with someone about a potential project this morning to help with uh, helping users of a building understand how different their new building is compared to their own old building. Mm-hmm. You know, heat pumps have been installed, not boilers. So how do we educate them as to what's changed without making it feel onerous uh, or terrifying or confusing? Like, what do you need to do? And I think that's where the user experience stuff really comes in because you know, we'll be designing a website and a poster effectively. But mm. what does it need to do? The design part, and sorry, designers, that's easy. You make it look pretty and you deliver the information in the right order. But what needs to be there uh, and how are the people going to access it? And how, inte- and how integral does it need to be? Because it's, it's, yeah. it's just an afterthought, you know, and you haven't thought, for instance, into ultimately, um, just to contradict what you were saying about design the way down, you need you need to get into the product design as well, you know, to, mm. to think of, to think about how this info, how, how this is uh, developed and presented with uh, really good uh, understanding of how users will, uh, will will interact with it or not, you know. Yeah, but then the age old problem of if if you gather together a group of uh, experts or professionals or people who know their trade uh, and ask them to choose the best person, they will inevitably choose somebody very different to what you or I, the layperson, will choose. A a, a million years ago, uh, I think the Sunday Times used to run uh, a a feature in their magazine of, you know, the architect's favourite architect, the car designer's favourite car designer, uh, the bread maker's favourite bread maker. And inevitably, whatever the end product was, to you or I, it was absolutely crap. But for those in the know, it was amazing. (laughs) And of course, architects are the perfect example of, you know, this pure concrete building is amazing yeah and, uh, the joe blogs on the street is saying that's crap <laughs> i love I, I i probably said this before to you as well I, i'm back up a vague memory i might have but um i remember watching a documentary years ago about uh mies uh, ludwig von mies van der rohe the kind of legendary uh yeah, yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know yeah. what father of modernist architecture one of the forefathers I suppose you'd yeah say. exactly um, the international style and all of that yeah exactly and um, and uh it was talking about how annoyed he would get when people when he designed these uh you know minimalistic uh, glass and steel boxes um that people would have the audacity to bring their stuff into them you know um and ruin his design and yet he lived in a bloody shambling old uh i don't know if it was a brownstone or whatever but it was a, a shambling old building that was absolutely filled with clutter you know um I, I like it and actually architects tend to live in older buildings uh, yeah. and inflict their the modern stuff uh, uh, on their client but but i think the the big criticism back then was uh the architect's favorite uh, building was generally uh, a bachelor pad for let's say a 30 something uh, man uh, <laughs> uh, white man uh, so uh, 
I think we've moved on a little bit, but I'm not so sure. I mean, it's like this whole this debate goes through everything from crash test dummies that are based on men uh, to um, heights of kitchen counters that are also based on men. Um, bringing this level of subtlety into a building, it, it it's not rocket science, and no. uh, it's it, it's hugely important. Actually, my dad was an architect, and uh, he designed the house that I grew up in. But he had the kitchen counter quite low because my my mum was uh, quite short. Uh, there's a whole other issue about who was in the kitchen, but uh, <laughs> it's time. I, I I think it was the one uh, step at a time. Yeah, I mean, yeah. no, this this was things... 1952 actually uh, when he designed the kitchen. So well, so that's quite quite revolutionary, really, in in its own way. Uh, it, you know, it, uh, yeah, uh, but pr- it's all relative, of course. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, Jeff, um, should we do uh, an introduction for Kieran and why we got him on today? No, like, I am enjoying myself. <laughs> don't get me wrong. <laughs> I just want to talk about kitchens. (laughs) I can feel we're getting 10 minutes in. We can definitely get back to the kitchen. It's the EU directive for for, for shorter kitchens. That's it, yeah. No, 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 for real. Uh, Kitchens in that regard is an important issue, which is vastly neglected because uh, retrofit is not just about energy efficiency. Mm. Adapting homes for people to be able to live in, like short mothers who how else would you get your dinner unless you could have your mammy cooking it for you etc we'll deal with the other diversity issue it'll be the kids now it'll be uh, the kids doing it because two exactly. parents working right yeah well i mean it, that ain't too far away in this country <laughs> <laughs> like child labor in yeah. uh, post-brexit britain yeah. that we can see it on the horizon <laughs> but yeah yeah but there's nothing for them to cook right <laughs> <laughs> jeff do the intro <laughs> okay, great. So, so Kieran Cuff uh, is uh, uh, a real kind of powerhouse and a, a formidable person in the context of the Europe-wide transition to low energy buildings. Um, he's an architect. He's one of these annoyingly qualified people, actually. Um, as I understand, <laughs> an, an architect. Uh, this is just my own kind of begrudgery coming through. An architect and a planner. I think you're both qualified in both disciplines. Is that right? For my sins. For my sins. Yeah. yeah. Um, a lecturer at, um, at what is now Technological University Dublin, if I recall correctly. Um, yeah. A government minister. Uh, your minister for planning. Where is I recall? In correctly. a previous life. Yes. Yeah. Um, and city councillor, and then MEP for Dublin. Um, and, uh, and and returning champion to zero ambitions episode twenty nine. Well, most importantly of all, yes, absolutely. Um, we've allowed you. We've deigned to allow you back, Kieran. Um, <laughs> well, thank so, you. <laughs> um, so, uh, I, uh, and in this particular area, in terms of of low energy building, um, Kieran's got real form. Uh, I mean, I go back with him. I remember. Uh, presenting to Kieran before the Joint Oireachtas Parliamentary Committee on the Environment, um, specifically on um, the the government at the time, the Irish government's uh, uh, heel-dragging attempts on the implementation of the original Energy Forms of Buildings Directive and the idea of bringing in energy ratings for buildings. Back in 2005, I think it was, actually, uh, from memory. Um, I yeah, I think so. And I think um, I think I launched Tommaso Leary's first conference on this whole new thing of passive houses. Oh, yeah, they don't work. Yeah, yeah, they don't work. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it never worked. It never catch on. Yeah. Um, so, um, uh, and then t- more recently, Kieran, uh, 
uh, was the rapporteur for the European Parliament's uh, own initiative report on a renovation wave. Uh, that was yep. what, three years ago or so, I suppose. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. Yeah. Significant piece of work. Um, and uh, and then after that, um, uh, they've uh, uh, he's, he was given the responsibility of taking the same role with regard to the uh, the, um, the the next recast of the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. Um, I mean, that is a hell of a responsibility. Uh, but I'm, I was thrilled to see it, it ending up in your hands. Uh, you know, you're going to make a dog's dinner, of course, now, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, of course, of course. No, I mean, there's clearly, there's clearly a, a path or a, a, a kind of a trajectory in there. Uh, and I've always, uh, I guess, been interested in, in buildings. And sometimes my megalomaniac uh, tendencies uh, push me out into thinking about redesigning communities and uh, the way we travel, uh, the way we organize our our neighbourhoods and our regions. Uh, but at the heart of it all is, uh, I would like to think, uh, an improvement uh, in the quality of the spaces that we occupy in our daily lives. And thankfully, Europe is thinking along similar lines. Uh, and obviously, uh, the big picture in this five-year period is the European Green Deal, uh, which translates into about 20 different laws, specifically called the Fit for 55 package. And this is all about reducing greenhouse gas emissions in Europe by 55% between 1990 and 2030. The good news is we're well on our way to that. Uh, but as always, uh, the low-hanging fruit is easy and the stuff at the top of the tree is a lot harder. And really, uh, over the next seven years, we want to achieve an awful lot in the way we, uh, you know, in every aspect of our lives, from agriculture to uh, energy to transport to construction. Uh, and I like to think of it as being a gentle revolution. It is revolutionary because it is changing the way we do everything. And if you resist this change, um, you'll be stuck. Um, but obviously, there is real. there are real opportunities in all of this. And I think in the construction sector, people see it. Uh, and yet we're, we're seeing it happen uh, with the big companies, the multinationals, they're often going for BRIAM uh, or lead uh, high lead standards in their buildings or even uh, reach, achieving the passive house uh, standard. But it's not just about, you know, a fancy uh, office block for, for uh, you know, a, a well-known company. Mm. Really, over the next 25, 30 years, we want to decarbonize all of our European buildings. Why? Uh, because buildings in Europe, in the European Union, consume 40% of the energy, produce 36% of the greenhouse gas emissions. And if we can crack buildings, we're well on our way uh, to decarbonizing uh, th this entire subcontinent. So it's it's a good news story, uh, but it's not easy. And there are quite a few people who really don't want this, this to move at the pace that it needs to move. Okay, yeah, that that is challenging. So you're at the moment. Uh, if you could just give us a, an update of where where you're at with the recast, because it's been through. Yeah, uh, the, the, it, 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 there's a kind of a a long enough gestation, a torturous kind of uh, gestation period uh, for for, uh, for for getting these kind of recasts done, isn't there? Absolutely. Like any piece of of uh, of legislation, there's a lot of milestones that we have to pass before we get to that uh, destination. I think the last time we spoke, uh, Jeff, it was probably, was it a year ago or even further? Um, that, yeah. And we were coming out of the pandemic and touch wood, that will continue, uh, the, the rates of COVID will continue to diminish. 
And maybe back then we were talking about the importance of indoor air quality and indeed outdoor air quality uh, as a result of the pandemic. And that certainly can start a conversation about buildings and the role of buildings and how we heat them and how we cool them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But since then, we've had uh, Putin's murderous war in Ukraine. Uh, As we speak, it's the one year anniversary of his invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Europe has had to respond in many different ways from uh, a defence point of view, but also in terms of ramping up uh, ambition on renewables. The Repower EU package, which was finally approved in recent days, it's about boosting rooftop solar. It's about boosting heat pumps and it's about moving away uh, from uh, importing fossil fuels from Russia. Now, it's not all good. I mean, we do have to keep the lights on in the short term. Uh, So we're going up to Norway for uh, fossil gas, natural gas, whatever you wish to call it. Uh, We're also going to Algeria and even over to Qatar, uh, trying to find the energy that we need in the short uh, to medium term. But interestingly, talking to a, a colleague from the European Commission, he said, The problem I'm encountering in Qatar is I'm saying, look, I want a 10 year gas contract. But other other countries like China are coming in saying we'll buy it for 30 years. And that just shows you that we are trying to move away from fossil fuels pretty quickly. Uh, We've already cut down uh, absolutely 80, 90 percent on our gas, on our fossil fuels from Russia. But we're also seeing a reduction uh, generally in, in use of fossil fuels within the European Union. Um, part of that is just the spikes in, in fossil fuel prices, which have led to spikes in, in electricity prices. But there is a long-term trend here. Uh, we've seen the, the sale of photovoltaics and the sale of heat pumps uh, go through the roof, I think up 30, 40, 50% uh, in many countries in Europe over the last year. And with this new directive, or a recast of a previous directive, I think this is the third or fourth iteration of the directive, there is a lot of ambition coming into the mix. We are essentially trying to move towards making almost every building in Europe A-rated by 2050. And by the year 2030, and even the year 2027 in some instances, we want to move up the energy scale. We're, we're all familiar with the, the rainbow diagrams from A to G. Mm. And obviously, A is the target. And clearly, you know, heritage buildings, protected structures, we can't bring all of them to an A rating. But we want to start off initially with the worst performing buildings. And we're redefining the G on the scale as being the 15% of the worst performing building stock in the country that you're in, in each of the 27 countries. Now, As a scientist, you're kind of going, wait a second, this isn't absolutely methodologically correct, but it is a political compromise. It means that everybody has to do something. So even if you're living in Finland, you will have to tackle your 15% worst performing buildings. There might be double days, they might have loads of insulation, but maybe, maybe they need a heat pump or maybe they could go that extra mile. Whereas if you're in Bulgaria, you know, uh, we the, the lowest performing buildings need a huge amount of work. But we want to make sure we don't overburden any country. And we want to make sure that everybody does something. And if we tackle the E's and the F's and the G's, we're, we're starting to ta- get to the heart of the problem. We're also redefining the A. And the A rating uh, will become a zero energy building. 
not NZ, not near zero energy building, but a new definition of a a zero emission building uh, that will reach a very high energy performance. It will vary between the four different climate regions of Europe, from Nordic down to Mediterranean. It will vary depending on whether it's a new building or an existing building. And of course, it will vary depending on the building function, residential, offices, uh, etc. But ultimately, uh, we're we're looking for a higher A-rated standard. And in the first 10 years, we want to absolutely uh, move all those E's, F's and G's up the scale. So, for instance, in the residential sector, we want to make sure we get every dwelling up to an E by 2030 and a D by 2033. I mean, you might pull back from that and say that's not very ambitious. But actually, there's a huge amount of work to achieve this. Uh, we think it'll be at least 270 billion per year in the European Union. Uh, it is a massive undertaking. I mean, I started off saying, let's get everything to a C by 2030. Uh, but I I hit the political re- reality. I hit yeah. the rock of yeah. political reality fairly early on. I, I think as uh, long as you don't put a ceiling here on, on it for people, you know, and as long as you try and take them... Um, a systematic approach that doesn't lock people into those lower or mediocre ratings, you know, so into yeah. those improved but not great ratings. Um, you know, you want to kind of try and take a, an approach that that uh, makes a building livable and makes whatever uh, carbon reductions you can now uh, within people's budgets and within what's, you know, yeah. possible technologically at the moment and so on. And then uh, at the same time, you have an eye on the future and, and uh, like having a, a whole house retrofit plan you know, so so that you um, so that you are uh, giving well, the, the 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 owners architects of the building, uh, you know the the you're 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 already kind of planting the seed in their head. This is what you can do next. So well, they change uh, exactly. Your to make, yeah, you know. exactly. So we talk a lot about um, uh, scaled deep uh, renovation, uh, deep renovation. So uh, we want to give people the roadmap. In other words, a building uh, energy passport, which shows you what you need to do next. Because mm-hmm. not everybody can throw the amount of money for a new car at their at their home, right? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, I, I think, Jeff, your point about uh, a floor, not a ceiling, is absolutely on point. And I think uh, your point, Kieran, like, better is better. There's more heat lost through ceilings than fairness on the floors. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, that, that, you should be sorry. Um, so, they... Like better is better. There's no getting away from it. And like I'm, I'm, if it, so long as it's a floor, not a ceiling, and you're forcing a trajectory of improvement, like it is inevitable that things will get better because when people begin to realize the comfort benefits, and as the market matures, things get cheaper because there's more people able to offer the services. Uh, yeah. As consumers become aware more about what they can do for themselves things become more achievable. But the Mm. bit I'm very curious about is, like when you're working at this sort of macro level, like you're looking continental-wide, you're not looking narrow, how do you, what are you able to do in terms of infrastructure planning? Like the reason I ask is because, so we're working with somebody who's got a big pot of money, customers coming out of their ears, but no suppliers to spend it with for retrofitting thousands upon thousands of units. And we're working with them to like UX 
the process for acquiring suppliers to deliver on the work. Like, how can you, how do you even approach a proposition like that? Yeah, I mean, look, we, we do have severe supply chain uh, difficulties in, in the short term. Uh, some of those came from COVID and some are coming from uh, the war in Ukraine. But this is a 30-year project and uh, the implementation of this directive uh, certainly will bring us up to uh, the mid-2030s. So we recognise that there are both supply chain difficulties in the short term, but there also is a need to upskill. Uh, and here in Ireland, uh, we're opening six centres of excellence in upskilling uh, because nobody is a perfect expert on this. Architects aren't, engineers aren't, uh, tradespeople aren't. Uh, and we need to bring not just the professional upskilling, but we need to make sure that um, different trades know how to do this. I mean, the good news is you can take a plumber and uh, work with them at installing a heat pump and uh, certainly after six weeks, they'll be proficient at it and they'll be qualified at it. But like in some countries, there's different regulations. You need to have a refrigeration uh, uh, qualification to install a heat pump. I think that's the case in some parts of Belgium. Um, so there are obstacles in all of this. But really, we're we're laying the groundwork. And we're also trying to ensure a few other things. Uh, I mean, minimum energy performance standards are the kernel. They're at the heart of this directive. But we also need the one-stop shops. We need the building passports that show you what you can do next yeah. and what has been done uh, so far. We need the skills training and we need the finance. Um, so that that's going quite well. I mean, the European Central Bank came out in support of this, uh, of this new law. The European Investment Bank is rebranding itself as the Climate Bank. And even conversations I've had with... with um, you know, bodies, uh, some, well, companies like Blackstone, they're saying, show us the legislation and we'll comply, but just give us the legislative certainty. And then we can, we can, we can feed that into our planning for the next three years, the next five years, the next 10 years. That's remarkable. The Blackstone are asking for clarity rather than asking for the rules to see how they might be circumvented <laughs> well you know yeah you, you have to engage i mean there's a there's a big uh, german uh, building owner uh, velovia i think they control half a million properties in germany uh, and they were pretty much coming out with exactly the same message when i met them uh, when i met them a few weeks ago and and of course the one thing the one thing i haven't mentioned so far is the importance of social safeguards because we don't just want to improve the homes of those who are doing okay in society. And it's clear to me that we need to tackle energy poverty around Europe. We, we have the figures for the tens of millions of people in Europe who, who can't pay the bills. And this winter, that's probably gone up into hundreds of millions uh, of Europeans. So we want to ensure that we target those living in voluntary housing, in uh, local authority housing. Uh, and we want to uh, provide certainty, uh, certainties against renoviction, which is a term that comes up in Germany quite a bit of landlords mm. simply doing the renovations, doubling the rent and kicking out by default uh, the tenants. So there's a lot of work that we've been doing on trying to ensure that we improve um, the homes of those who are living in fuel poverty, in energy poverty, and that the money just doesn't go simply uh, to doing up the homes of the well-off.
and, and by a similar token, you're thinking, I mean, not just about decarbonizing the buildings, but 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 in a manner that uh, that will actually reduce the running costs for those kind of vulnerable occupants too. I, I presume. I only raise this because um, um, I have this kind of uh, fundamental concern that when you have green building standards or energy or energy performance standards, notional energy performance standards that are in any way decoupled from um, the or, or that 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 don't show a clear tangible benefit to to the occupant of the building um i think that there's a real risk of things uh uh going awry and i'm, I'm thinking in the context of we're you know we're now starting to see in ireland uh a reasonable number of uh homes built to the nearly zero energy building standard and i'm start starting to get stories anecdotally and this, we're starting to get research results from early kind of state-funded research projects as well, monitoring studies, um, to show performance issues, performance gaps, you know, um, and uh, people who are maybe discovering that the home is colder than they expected, that they have a high expectation of the home because it's an A-rated building, you know, A2 rated yeah. building, or, you know, and an ends up. Um, and, uh, and, and, the, and the reality is that for whatever reason, their their costs are higher, or they can't heat the building. You know. Yeah. Well, this winter, I think, uh, because the cost of electricity went through the roof, um, people with heat pumps were were uh, disappointed that they they weren't getting the savings that they hoped for. But this is a, a, a an anomaly, and yeah, uh, you know, at a European level, we're trying to decouple the electricity price from the gas price, and that will happen not today or tomorrow, but it will happen over time. Uh, and this is quite important because we are trying to electrify everything and within this directive we have uh, several articles dealing with uh, providing for charging of uh, electric vehicles um, and uh, when a deep renovation is done on a large building we want to make sure that there's uh, EV charging points and we've had huge rows about ducting about charging uh, so we've been fiddling around with the numbers to try and uh, keep as many people as we can uh, happy uh, on this. Uh, and you know that that cartoon the image of of a, a home with the PV panels on the roof and the vehicle uh, with the plug going into it from that building. So uh, your building uh, can charge your your battery, and you'd be familiar with Mel Reynolds, who has designed a building just like that uh, here in, in Dublin, uh, and that will be part of how this will operate. And then thinking about the energy storage and. Um, so many interesting aspects to that. I was up with Danfoss, uh, a company that provides a huge amount of energy management solutions up in Denmark. They invented the thermostatic radiator valve, which is uh, an interesting kind of nerdy, uh, nerdy uh, thing about them. Uh, but they're doing a huge amount of work on energy storage. And they say, look, Kieran, it's not just about a battery. It's about thinking of the building as a battery mm -hmm. and heating that at the right time. Uh, heating hot water at the right time uh, and using that to to manage and adapt to the availability of renewables. Uh, and it gets really interesting when you start linking in responsive systems, whether it be uh, bi-directional charging on a car battery or heating hot water when the wind is blowing. Um, this becomes a really interesting uh, way of looking at how energy is used wisely. What I'm curious about that because all of these these advances, I think they they really show that there is a 
a positive future and we're really thinking about lots and lots of solutions but they are to some extent they are quite complicated um so i'm wondering what is being done in terms of education education as well or at least just creating awareness because awareness is something that's from at all levels from the people actually using the buildings to the people creating them and, and the entire infrastructure around it what we find is that not that many people who are aware of what's going on apart from the sort of the core group who are really um in it and immersed in it so w- what are we doing to really really raise awareness to make it as as i don't know if, uh, I, one of the podcasts someone was talking about an example of using a keeping up with the Kardashians retrofits as an example <laughs> of really making something uh, mainstream because it's not the case at the moment. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we probably need to borrow something from the way the car industry works. I mean, we all know about, uh, it, it's a bit like, how do you, how do you know somebody's run a marathon? Uh, they tell you, uh, <laughs> and, and the same with Tesla owners, uh, they tell you, but we don't have, I, I, I think those of us who've, done some work in our homes to make them more efficient. We don't go around evangelizing that much. I mean, you do, uh, all you guys do, but most yeah. people don't want to yeah. scream to the world that, uh, uh, about the amount of uh, insulation they put in their attic. You, you want to find a way to make it palatable. I'm always reminded, Kieran, when I talk about this stuff, there's an episode of Father Ted where Jack, where Jack gets um, locked in like a, a pantry with his priest um it's like one of those boring priests in the world and he's like uh what is it he says and uh and they have the largest selection of boilers in the world and i do canada in that and i think and that's that's the guy i feel like <laughs> if I, somebody <laughs> sat next to me at a dinner party hearing what i do i've always got that guy in my head thinking don't be him but how do you how do you stop yourself from being this guy when you talk well, about you it? can't stop yourself jeff you're intrinsically <laughs> yeah. boring yeah. in this regard uh yeah i mean look i i think the one-stop shops will do something on this because this is about disseminating best practice uh telling people about what they need to do but we do need to kind of to to sell our product to to borrow the sales pitch and uh, i was i was seeing if i could sell people Hugo homes like that that scandinavian feeling of of coziness uh, yeah. as something to aspire to, and and that certainly yeah. works with with some audiences. Uh, but I think particularly with the the energy price volatility of the last uh, year, I, I think people they're looking for comfort, and starting with the home is a good place where people want to be insulated against price shocks. And doing that deep retrofit retrofit will help them on this, uh, and telling people about it i mean look this is not just about one law at european level yeah in the individual member state in each country they have to have a national building renovation plan and i think the national building renovation plans are that interface between what goes on in brussels and what goes on in the home country so we obviously need very different messaging in bulgaria than we need in malta uh, in finland versus versus portugal um, and, you know, in Portugal, we can sell retrofits on the basis of being able to get cheaper electricity from your PV panels. Yeah. Uh, but in Finland, uh, it's about reducing your winter energy costs. I tell you what I'd love to see here, um, uh, just linked to, to the specific point, um, and, and actually borrowing from the car industry again. Um, I think it'd be, it'd be amazing there's a way, and I don't know if, if, if there's policy instruments that could be used to do this, um, to enable people to do some the equivalent with a building of taking a car for a road test 
Um, so in other, in other words, like um, whether it's specific tax breaks or incentives for the hospitality industry, um, for um, for B and Bs, you know, um, for yeah. for homes to to enable people in an off season, typically, you know, winter uh, for these properties to go and live in a, in a passive house, spend a weekend in a passive house, um, and uh, you know, uh, and feel for yourself before you sign up and do it, uh, you know live through the experience of it because the thing is when we we have this time and time again at the magazine when we write about these buildings and we talk to the occupants you know um if they've been you know thankfully at this stage after 20 years of publishing um we probably should be writing about some bad buildings consciously in fairness uh, too but um mm-hmm. we're picking buildings that are that are you know of a decent standard i suppose um and uh you tend to have very positive stories about people people who um who've been through the process who uh who who've had their lives transformed by it, you know? Um and um who who uh it just makes it so much more relatable, you know, when when you when you have like people talking about how they struggle to stay in other people's houses anymore because um you know because it's they've gone soft, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean uh, some of the NGOs in in, in Brussels uh, have building ambassadors uh communicating the benefits. Uh, of really well-designed or retrofitted buildings. And I think that's important. But I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I take a lot of taxis and on the app in Dublin, you can specify an electric taxi. And the amount yeah. of conversations I've had with taxi drivers who love their electric taxi. And they are amazing ambassadors for for certainly electrifying um, the way we move around in cars. So uh, we we need that for buildings for buildings too. Maybe Maybe there's a role for Airbnb to have uh, a passive house special uh, or do something on on this. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, I think, uh, I mean, it's funny listening to this conversation or being part of this conversation, but being quite specifically positioned on the outside of it for a change. Because, mm-hmm. like, I'm listening to so much of this with envy because this isn't going to trickle through to where we're at. Like, yeah. The regs that we're facing in oh man, we're used to it being watered down. And this so the position of passive house, like Jeff's converted me on this, that people passive house and better quality uh insulation, energy efficiency, the way that manifests in terms of experience is lower energy bills and greater comfort. And the greater comfort and both of them are about heat retention. That's that's the bit needs to be sold all over the place. But once again, in this country, we're not used to living in comfort. <laughs> we we don't really expect it. And I think that's the bit that changes with initiatives like the one you're well, that you're you're leading across Europe, like with this recast, uh improving yeah. the situation further. Like yeah. it's it's like I wish I wish I could feel like a part of it. Rather than having to be some insurgents within the UK, trying oh, to. Oh God! Well, look, we're we're, we're not there. Yeah. We're not quite there yet, and there's many a slip between cup and lip. Yeah. Uh, and by that, I mean that we still have to get this file through plenary next month. We then have to get it through the trialogue process, and then we have to get it implemented uh, in in each of each of 27 different countries. So it's not it's not all sweetness and light, and there have been some compromises that I don't like. Uh, in the bill. Uh, but what's interesting to me is that in different parts of Europe, we're using different messaging to sell this. Uh, for some, 
It's about um, energy security and getting away from Russian Russian energy. For others, it's about indoor comfort. Uh, for others, uh, uh, it's about saving money. So we're using different messages to persuade people to back this. But one of the more successful things that we did within my political group, we produced a set of posters. Uh, and one of them uh, simply says, uh, insulate homes, isolate Putin. Uh, and it's a play on on a word that in Italian it's the same it's the same verb, but uh, it, it's a very clear message. Uh, if you want to give Putin the boot, uh, insulate your home. Uh, and um, a number of organisations have quantified that. Uh, if we renovate the e, E's, F's, and G's to a D, that's a thirty percent reduction in the gas that we took from Russia. Um, so we can quantify it in very real numbers. Uh, mm. Renovating homes makes it gives us more in energy independence, and that means less dodgy fossil fuels from dodgy dictators. It's fantastic, yeah. Um, it's brilliant trying to find leverage like that, like uh, using tragedy mixed with jingoism uh, <laughs> and patriotism, like and all sorts of like reactionary feeling to this really positive end, which some of the people you're inspiring in this would not be concerned by the 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 climate issues exactly yeah. exactly yeah i didn't even mention the climate imperative there you know yeah, yeah. it was look, conspicuous but like uh, absolutely on point because you don't need to all the time yeah i mean but look, 15 if, years ago i was just you know pointing at people and saying you have to save the planet and now it's a much more i think humble message of saying look i want to help you save money yeah. Um, so, well, I think so you... if people cared about climate, there'd have been a lot more action by now. Fair point. Fair point. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, you're right. Problem. And these things are complicated. And and you know the 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 slow changes that we're seeing with climate can be hard to communicate unless it's a flood or a wildfire or record-breaking temperatures. Uh, and even then, people kind of go, "Oh, well, that's over there. It's not here." Uh, and here in Dublin, we had our hottest ever recorded um uh, temperature last summer and people were ah you know some people are just saying that's normal you know weather always yeah. changes yeah yeah um, i think unfortunately uh, it's very much like everything that we do in terms of re user research is you have to find out what's in it for me at the end of the day you have yeah. to identify obviously you have to do it over a, quite a wide number of people but it's to figure out what's in it for them and and appeal to them on that basis. And as you say, it's going to be money. It's going to be an ideal. Some of them, hopefully, will be save the, the planet. Um, but you have to identify all the possible solutions or reasons why they should do this and make that the yeah. reason and the path for them to decide to do it. And, and no more so than within the halls of the European Parliament, where I think Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission, played a blinder when she talked about a European Green Deal, because she was able to look at the European People's Party, a centre-right group, and say, this is a green growth, a green job strategy for Europe. She could look at the left and say, this is about a just transition. And she could look at us and say, hey, it's not just about a just transition, it's about uh, environmental action as well. So you do need, and the way the European Parliament operates, um, it's not just, it's not like Westminster or the Doyle in Dublin of people, the government shouting at the opposition and vice versa. We do have to operate in a collegial manner. You're always trying to get 51% on your side. So you have to build a coalition. And thus far, 
I've managed to get the left to support this file and EPP. So hopefully that will maintain itself as a broad majority as we go through plenary and uh, allow the file, the level of ambition to to continue uh, all the way into law. That's fantastic. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you uh, before I, I uh, regret omitting it um, is uh, back on this issue of the interplay between this directive and this uh, very uh, surprising, from my perspective, shift that we're seeing in, in the finance community. Um, I remember um, last week I heard, um, uh, I think through the IGBC, Irish Green Building Council, of one of the biggest developers in Ireland um, uh, talking about their energy ratings and and, and their their backers onto them saying, you know, oh, you're building to the NZ standard. Great. Um, You know, but that's not enough for us. How are they actually performing? Right. Uh So now that is amazing to hear. Um, And and we're hearing similar stories on broader sustainability, even um, from from uh, from the biggest developers in Ireland generally, um, which has completely caught me by by surprise um, over the last year or more. Um, But on that particular point, um, you know, the performance gap on ensuring the buildings actually perform. How much does that feed into this uh, to to, to ensure that uh, that that there's credibility to this and and to ensure that you're giving member states a tool that uh that is good enough for, for this this shift in finance as well you know yeah a, a lot of that will come will boil down uh, to a country by country level of actions uh and uh, we don't deal with enforceability and i haven't quite got the hooks i would have liked uh to make sure that these these benefits are delivered Interestingly, there was a, a European Court of Auditors report a few years ago where they voiced concern that in four energy saving schemes that they looked at, none of them measured the energy use before and the energy use after. I mean, mm. really simple stuff. Mm. Show us how much you used, do the work and show much how much you saved afterwards. So I think the energy, the national building renovation plans are one way of doing that because the performance issue is certainly visible to us in Ireland and in the UK, I think, but maybe less of an issue in Finland or in France. So mm. uh, I and there are different concerns that come up in in each of those different jurisdictions. But I think the beginning of your question was, you know, how do we relate this to the other laws that are coming in? Because you also have a a recast of the energy efficiency directive and the renewable energy directive. You've then new things like the climate social fund, the carbon border adjustment levy. Uh, I mean, before before you finish, your, your eyes start to glaze over with the all the different legislative instruments. But what I would say is that they are all pushing in the same direction. Even the CO2 emission standards for cars and vans, what we call the ice band, the, the, the phasing out of the production of cars and vans using diesel or petrol, that links in to the buildings directive because we'll need to have more charging points mm-hmm. so there is certainly there's joined up thinking at the direction of travel over the next 10 20 30 years uh, but maybe there is a gap there on making sure that these gains are actually realized and that probably will be something we'll come back to over the next five-year period very good um, and before i forget to mention it 
there was there were there was talk at least early on, if I recall correctly, about embodied carbon coming into the directive, or there was there was some discussion. Yep, we, is that is that still on the table? No, it's still in there. We have we have hooks, as we call it, with uh, on uh, using the levels uh, framework uh, to assess the embodied uh, the embodied carbon. Not as strongly as we wanted within the actual text. Some of it is in the recitals, so uh, they're not mandatory. Um, again. We couldn't get all of this across the line, uh, but you know it's mentioned in the text, and there is a push on larger projects to measure it. Uh, so we will see it happening on larger buildings, and clearly there will be a benefit if you can reduce the uh, embodied carbon in the materials you're using, whether it be new build or renovation. And I think that will spur innovation in uh, in industrial production, uh, and together with various other laws on the circular economy uh, and elsewhere, this will start to create more of a shift towards lower carbon materials and reused uh, materials. The building products directive, I think, comes into the mix as well. So there's three or four um, pushes uh, towards embodied carbon, uh, which which is great. Well, which again should support your, you know, European industry because uh, we can we can expect manufacturing industry in Europe to have probably more drivers pushing down emissions, uh, you know, of the products that they produce than than mm-hmm. and, and stuff that come from kind of commodity markets from further afield, you know. Um, yeah, and, and look, I think consumer demand will be part of this, and that consumer demand is is absolutely influencing the corporate giants of this world. Uh, obviously, you can see, let's say, the tech companies buying green electricity. But I think it'll come down to uh, institutional investments and the European taxonomy uh, is absolutely pushing, uh, essentially dividing investments with the traffic light system of green, green, orange and red. And most institutional investors will have a high expectation from their shareholders to go for green uh, on what they invest in. And that means retrofitting of bringing, let's say, um, a building portfolio from that E up to a D uh, and onwards to a B 10 years later. I'm just curious about the place of waste in all of this. Because when we make changes, so this isn't to to knock any of it. I just wonder if uh, this is something which is borne in mind at any point. Because retrofit generates waste, inevitably, you know, changing boilers. But how Mm. can such a thing be factored into a process like this? Good question, because we, I mean, we have a waste framework directive and a construction product uh, directive, and they they don't maybe engage with this as much as they should. But I think the step change in construction, and certainly in the UK and Ireland, I, I talk about it as being a move away from feet and inches towards millimeter millimeter tolerances. And that in itself ensures that there's less wastage, because mm-hmm. we're we're measuring more carefully mm. uh, a construction site of a passive house is usually a bit different from a traditional construction site there isn't y- y- crap stored you can eat your dinner off the breath of the, the floor and they say that kind of yeah thing. not quite yeah. but 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 certainly yeah <laughs> we've literally had people say that but i wouldn't recommend it but yeah <laughs> yeah so i think that helps and and uh the closer we get to that zero emission building uh the more 
the more tightly you control your materials, your costs, your 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 air your air tightness. So I think it does reduce the amount of waste. But has anybody done that big calculation of how much stuff do we need to get everything <clears throat> up to an A energy rating? I haven't seen that figure. There may well be bodies that have done it. But yeah, I mean, you have to, you can't make an omelette without breaking eggs. And the conversation yeah. I've had uh, with my government colleagues here in Ireland is about the huge ambition for offshore wind, uh, which will require a lot of steel and a lot of concrete. Um, so there is, you've got to expand a lot of energy to move us into that renewable space. Now, the academic papers show that particularly, let's say, a modern wind turbine generally pays for its embodied carbon within one or two years. Yeah. But it is a lot. Um, and yeah. it is a challenge well, to this reduce is, that. This is it. We had a, a passive house in uh, Devon that we published recently. Um, it's timber frame, sadly loves insulated, uh, recycled newspaper insulated uh, uh, building with um it was an insulated rock concrete foundation system um but they had um which is the biggest kind of carbon penalty in the in the in the structure and the, you know the substructure and superstructure itself uh, by far um but um we did an body carbon analysis on the building we did a calculation on it um and there's this pv roof on this building a big i mean it's it is like the entire roof surface is pv right um um and based on the environmental product declarations for EPDs that we had available, because they didn't have one for the particular panel that had been used, but, but, but for the kind of PV that it was, it was a monocrystalline PV rate. Um, over the 60-year period, that we, the UK methodology, as opposed to levels used 50 years, um, whereas the UK methodology uses a 60-year lifespan for the building. Cut to the chase, Jeff. It was 60, over 60% of the embodied carbon of the whole building was the PV panels. Right, wow. not counting what they were generating. Okay, um, yeah. But we found uh, through the Norwegian EPD organization a manufacturer called uh, Maxian, who have a, a PV module that had uh, it was just twenty five percent of the emissions of the embodied carbon emissions of the highest uh, wow. embodied yes. carbon PV. Yes. Right. Um, yep. So uh, you know. That's why this embodied carbon calculation to me feels so. I mean, that was a, a, an extraordinary example uh, to see to see such a profound impact. Um, but you know, because you had in that case with Maxian, uh, they went, they use a Norwegian uh, manufacturer for the uh, for the ingot, the, the wafer, um, and they, it was all hydroelectricity that was used. Um, to, to, you know, so so that completely transformed the, the the footprint of the product, and it feels to me I would just be really worried that there's a huge missed opportunity here. You know, because these products are bloody on the market already. That's the frustrating thing. <laughs> um, but um, because we don't yet have uh, widespread use of the tools to show us these benefits that are lying there in plain sight. Um, we, uh, we 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 miss out on it, and and from a policy perspective and so on, it just you know you end up. No, we uh, absolutely we need it, and we need it soon. Uh, I mean, it's a bit like uh, price per kilo uh, stickers in a supermarket. They really help you work out whether to buy this product or that product. Yeah, uh, and we do need need the same uh, with building products, and uh, I think it'll happen sooner rather than later. I, I, I think the market will move quite quickly on this, particularly because of the innovation. You talked about PV panels. We're seeing uh, low carbon steel being produced in, uh, I think, in Finland yeah. uh, at the moment. That's going to uh, scale up over the next few years. And 
you can bet your bottom dollar uh, that a corporate uh, client will say, I want that steel to be low carbon. I want that concrete to be uh, green concrete. Uh, and I want those building products, the, the PV panels to be the lowest embodied carbon on the market. Yeah, exactly. It's fantastic. Great. Well, I think we've probably taken enough of your time, Kieran. It's a Friday yeah. evening as well now. I don't. Yeah. You're, in, you're, in, you're in Dublin. You're not. You, you've not had to. I'm in Dublin. It's great. Yeah. And this is you're my not last in Strasbourg. Time. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, it's uh, it's all awful commutes. Yeah. <laughs> to be on the home beat, and uh, uh, there's been. It's a very busy legislative period in Brussels, so I'm generally there in the middle of the week. But it's nice to have been in Dublin this week and to be here for the weekend. Well, yeah. before we say goodbye, is there anything you wanted to say that you've not had a chance to? Oh, um, I, I think we've covered pretty much everything. I, I, I think, look, um, this, this, this Green Deal stuff is going quite well. But there is a pushback. Uh, there are countries, there are political groupings that are resistant. And even though there is a strong green voice in the European Parliament, we are only... 10% of the parliamentarians. So there's 90% who really, they're all in favour of a little bit of green magic dust, but don't go too far. Uh, and there are pushbacks. And maybe I've been a bit too optimistic and a bit too uh, feel good about the whole thing. Uh, well, there are good days and bad days. And yeah. um, we're, we're moving in the right direction, but certainly not as fast as I would like. And Within the Green Group in the Parliament, we say, great that we have a European Green Deal, but it's actually not yet compatible with what science is telling us about yeah. the urgency of tackling climate and biodiversity breakdown. So on that sobering and depressing note, I think somebody needs somebody needs to have a word with science and get it, get, you know, get, tell it a little about a little thing called real politic, you know, get, get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> listen really? jeff and to all of you it's really nice having 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 the chat and i look forward to catching up with you again soon thanks a million kieran best of luck yeah cheers. Uh, thank you for joining us and uh to the listeners thank you for joining us as well and listening um share subscribe like review toxic positivity oh he's gone he's um, gone yeah yeah Cheers. All right. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah. Goodbye. Good riddance. Yeah. To you, Dan. Yeah. Not to not to Kieran. Yeah. Great. Oh, well, you can stop recording now. Yeah. Um, stop.